This episode of The Citadel Cafe is brought to you by listeners like you. Visit patreon.com slash the Citadel Cafe to find out how you can become a patron and help make this show possible. This is The Citadel Cafe, episode number 453 for Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. My name is Joel Duggan and The Citadel Cafe is where my friends and I hang out to talk about the geeky stuff that we are into. Returning this week, my friend and co-host on the Spawn Chunks podcast, Johnny, also known throughout the Minecraftiverse and on social media everywhere as Pixariffs is back to return and talk about the Rings of Power. We'll get to that in just a bit. You can also find Pixariffs on YouTube and twitch and boy sir have we had a busy week welcome back we have i was gonna say I and mean, thanks for having me on the podcast for what it will be our third conversation in the last few days but our third <laughs> recorded conversation because yes we did just cover minecraft live for the spawn chunks podcast over on my twitch channel where we were reacting live to all of the announcements that happened there we then did a spawn chunks episode about that on monday some 36 hours later and now here we are on the citadel cafe to talk about rings of power after i've only been on a couple of episodes ago a while back i said you know i was trying to go for the record of like the longest time between returning uh to to the show or something like that and now i feel like i'm also going for the shortest but i feel like i still get beaten out by uh, megan and alistair and the people who'll join you week to week yeah and i think that ryan murphy might hold the the biggest torch on like longest stint between episodes people who've known you for 10 years already kind of get the edge on that maybe not recently but i feel like at some point there was a point where like all of his kids were under three or something crazy yeah. <laughs> and he was just like i would love to come but i just i just can't and then also it depends on on because uh, he's a podcaster as well so it depends on people's schedules and, and whatnot yeah of course also just as you and i were about to hit record here the latest snapshot for minecraft came out so you and i both have a busy day after this <laughs> yeah we really do i don't want to turn this into an episode of the spawn shots no. but we occasionally cannibalize material for for the citadel cafe on on the pre-show and post-show on the spawn chunks so yeah we, we we might get into it a little bit but uh, i've i've basically just had a frantic 30 minutes of hands-on experience with the snapshot in which i realized that there was one setting i had to check that i didn't check before i started and i must have wasted about 20 of that 30 minutes so uh. i'll i'll, I'll be be heading back after this i'm very happy i don't have to edit this episode like i do with the other podcast because i would be uh yeah scrambling to get back into minecraft after this it's something that i definitely do not take for granted is the back and forth that you and i have on the spawn chunks because as i solo produce the sizzle cafe you and i both co-host and co-produce the spawn chunks so we divide mm -hmm, the duties yeah. evenly like you know after we're done recording you do the editing uh because that's just something that you do quite quickly and you know it's something that you have training in from beforehand and it was easy for you to kind of like work it into your workflow and then while you're doing that i can do like the, the title card art and the show notes on the website and then i take care of all the technical publishing on the back end and then social media and social media is easy it's like 15 minutes but it all balances out it ends up in an easy work day uh but when i have to do the citadel cafe and i'm done recording there's this immediate like oh i'm not done <laughs> Like yeah. <laughs> I still have to, I still have to edit this sometimes now, you know, 90 minute show because of how good some of the content that we've been covering has been. Uh, and I, I, it's not like I don't enjoy it. And I, I keep time codes and it, it's the, the easy way to go back and edit things. Cause we do try to stay 
live to hard drive. Um, but it's one of those things that you, you really appreciate like the teamwork on a podcast when you can yeah. split it up. But unfortunately, none of my other co-hosts have the time and or the experience to, to do that on the Citadel Cafe. So it's, it's all me. And there, there's something to be said too about like when you start off with a partnership on a project, that's one thing. But then when you have a project that's been yours for 10 years and you're trying to bring other people into it in terms of like the back end of things and how things are done, part yeah. of it is like you just you, you don't want to rock the boat you know it works and you're also just, it's kind of like your baby you know it's it's yeah it's like collaborating on an art project or collaborating on a minecraft build like you kind of have to if you start it together that's one thing but if you building your you know your your builds on empires all of a sudden somebody said like hey do you want to collab and i'll come in and build something in your area <laughs> like it's yeah. a yes but there's there's a bit of brain training that has to happen to be like yes i have to accept this and move forward <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I have always been that guy. I've always been the person, whenever you get that interview question of, like, what is one of your flaws as far as, like, working in a team, I am the one person who doesn't like to ask for help. I basically try and muscle my way through everything myself, and I'm like that with my YouTube channel now. I can't imagine getting somebody in to edit on the Pixlriffs channel because I just feel like that's like that's me handing over creative control of my output to somebody else like i can record all of this stuff but they're the one ultimately making the decision about what goes into an episode and i hate to critique people and give them notes and say like no you shouldn't have edited it that way so i'd be too much of a pushover which is kind of why i i still like editing all of the stuff that i make on my youtube channel myself yeah and i i know a, a youtube creator not a minecraft creator but a, a youtube creator that has recently hired someone to edit their stuff and you can tell like you can yeah. feel mm. the difference and the flavor difference and the we'll call it the try hard that seems to be happening with the edited content. And and right, they, and yeah. the creator has received feedback to be just like this. There's a lot of like interruptions and kind of like really forced jokes and strange cuts where there don't need to be. And like, it just, yeah. And, and and I think that they said that they're going to instruct the editor to dial it back a bit um, because it is fun, but it's almost like. If that editor doesn't have a lot of experience, then making jokes every five minutes defeats the the poignancy of of just one joke. You yes, know, if you made yeah, that totally. one joke once in the in the YouTube video, which is only twenty minutes long, you know, if that, then you know you 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 remove the the punch of it if you do it three more times in different ways. You know. Yes. Someone that approached me about offering to edit my streams into YouTube videos, and I was really tempted. Because like that is what I don't have time to do. And I, I know from my content, I am missing a presence on YouTube and I am missing a presence on small social media, like something like a TikTok or yeah, Instagram yeah. reels. Like I don't, I don't, don't have time to grab clips from Twitch and turn them into, or I shouldn't say I don't have time. I haven't made time to, yeah. to grab clip, clips from Twitch. And I have to make the clips myself on Twitch because if I leave it up to people in public, they just clip me looking at my inventory. Mm -hmm. Like it's the weirdest. I don't know why they clip that stuff. Yeah, like they, they hit the button by mistake almost half of the time. Or yeah. Like trying, to, trying to go back to hear something that you said that's just past the, the length of the clip and Twitch just publishes it anyway. That seems to be what happens to me all the time. Yeah. Half the time I think that people are doing it to like bookmark their spot when they leave the stream and like they <laughs> yeah, want to go or, back and find or it. Or if... Um, if somebody subscribes or follows and their name appears on screen, half the time it's that. And it's it's not relevant yeah. to something that you would want to go back and watch. It's really just them being like, oh, hey, my name was on there for a couple of seconds. I have started to get some interesting um, heads up from chat. Like, you know, I, I can't remember who it was. It might have been 
Dan or it was one of the people that we share a community with had asked me about roads and how I approach my roads. And I stopped and gave like a quick explanation, flew around the town, kind of showed off a couple of stuff. And then either Dan or somebody else in chat suggested, Hey, that would make a really good highlight. You should do yeah, that. Totally. And so I was, let's say I shot a message to cosmic, like remind me to do this after the stream. Otherwise I will forget and I will, it'll not get done. And so Cosmic is like my my DM reminder after the stream. Good stream, Joel. By the way, here's your to-do list. <laughs> starts, <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to like fix this command and like do this. And it's like, okay, thank you. Because <laughs> otherwise I will forget. You on the render distance let me know that you are now subscribing to Disney Plus, which is new to you. Yes. And I was excited. But we ran out of time because our Monday show was so big on on <laughs> monday wasn't. about about minecraft live and all the new changes coming to minecraft 1.20 so what like how has the disney plus experience been so far it's been good uh so my father-in-law is staying with us and we've been watching a lot more tv and movies than we normally would because it's nice to sit down at the end of the day have a meal with him and just veg out in front of the tv and nice. whilst Kay, my partner and i will usually watch stuff on youtube it's not necessarily going to be steve's bag so we've started to watch stuff that's like netflix movies and bits and pieces we watched lord of the rings rings of power with him and now that's ended we wanted to catch up on a couple of other things so i came downstairs from probably the minecraft live broadcast actually and they'd got disney plus on the tv and they were uh, like halfway into an episode of the falcon and the winter soldier and so i sat down with them started watching that um we've watched uh, thor love and thunder um we watched prey last night which uh, was not Steve's thing. Uh, he he oh. isn't super into gore and stuff. He liked the Native American setting and stuff, um, but he wasn't really super into the the violent side of things. So uh, yeah, two hits and a miss for that one. Um, but then yeah, we have three episodes into The Falcon and the Winter Soldier as well. I will probably catch up on a bit more Marvel and Star Wars stuff now that we've got this, at least for the next month, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. I'm not sure if I'll stay subscribed to it permanently, but nice to dip into it now we have the opportunity. So Disney Plus for me has got, I think, some of the most watched content that I I check out. And for me, I don't know what it costs in the UK, but it's like $13.79 Canadian, all taxes and stuff in on it. It's one of the cheaper, if not the cheapest, of the streaming services i think the only one that would be cheaper would be amazon prime video but that has the added value of having prime shipping included and as well yeah. as like prime books and amazon music like it's a whole thing for like 12 bucks so that's more affordable but their their catalog minus the the originals that they put out which we're going to be talking about later i feel like the catalog on amazon is very small uh, in mm -hmm. terms of what interests me, a lot of B movies that I just don't want to watch. Yeah, and and a lot of stuff that's like you've got to rent or buy it mm -hmm. because it's mm -hmm. it's there on the service, but it's behind an additional paywall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Disney, I find like after they bought Stars, surprisingly, they really kind of brought out things like Prey on Disney yeah. Plus. Because like because you're for the last year or two, it's been nothing but Star Wars, Marvel, and Disney and Pixar stuff, and very safe, family friendly content. But then once yeah. they bought Stars and the like the there's the american horror stories on there like there is some definitely sideways stuff on disney some Plus 20th now. century fox stuff that's like a little bit more adult yeah yeah so i've got some recommendations for you uh if if you're up for that uh, especially yeah, when, you, when you do have time for star wars uh really suggest you check out obi-wan kenobi uh it's a it's a accessible series there's only six uh and it was very very good mm -hmm. uh and or uh i am six episodes into the 12 it is also very good. We haven't had a chance to talk about it on the uh, the podcast yet because we've been focusing on Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. But yeah. 
Uh, I will give like a little asterisk with Andor saying the first two episodes are very slow. Right. Okay. It's one of those. It's a slow burn and it really takes off later. But it's a spy show. So like it kind of has to yeah. be like they kind of have to be all hush hush. Um, you might have some thoughts about the sound mix on that too, but uh, I mean, it's, it's very, it's <laughs> okay. very rumbly, very rumbly. One of those. Okay, yeah. good. But by the end of episode six, I feel like it's almost like it's a mid-season finale. Very exciting. Like I, it really, really amps itself up. Uh, and nice. if you want to watch some animation, the Bad Batch, as far as Star Wars goes, is something that I've heard you, good things. Yeah, you yeah. wouldn't have to have watched like all of the Clone Wars and all. The, there's a little bit of Easter eggs here and there for people that have watched the other cartoons, but you don't have to have seen that. It's very much self-contained and has some interesting um, in-world different view of Empire and clone troopers and stuff like that, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. I have not watched it yet, but the Light and Magic documentary is apparently very, very good about industrial light and magic and all the special effects yeah. and stuff like that. And I know you're into anime and Star Wars Visions is a series of anime shorts, uh, each directed by a different um, animation house. Yeah. Some of them are kind of goofy looking and then some of them are very serious looking. And so it just depends on what your flavor is. It kind of reminded me of the Animatrix when that came out, when between Very the Matrix 2 and 3. So it's like, yeah, a bunch of yeah. almost like some of them are sort of philosophical thought experiment kind of pieces and some of them more action focused. So, yeah, yeah I th those are definitely on my radar. I think I will uh, check out a couple of those. The, the same with the Marvel What If episodes, which obviously have more of a concept of, you know, weird combinations of different heroes and what if certain scenarios had happened or hadn't happened so we'll probably check out a couple of those i've heard some of them are a bit hit and miss but some others were pretty solid so we'll uh, we'll see what we can have time for steven esc who's on the show quite a lot with me uh he has watched all of the marvel what ifs the fam the, his whole family is very into marvel stuff and he he said the same thing overall hit or miss but he said that once you get through them all you can see where they want to go with the next phases of marvel so it's kind of worth mm -hmm. sticking it out uh you're already watching falcon and the winter soldier that was fantastic have you seen shang chi no not yet uh, steve also recommended that he's watched it at home and said it was pretty good very good yeah really enjoyed that spider-man no way home uh, is another one uh and miss marvel as a series is right is, is yes. fun uh, and, yeah. and I think, I think that you guys, I think that knowing your sense of humor and stuff like that, it's, it's a lighter show. So that it's not, I want to say they've rated <laughs> it PG 13 or something sure. or PG. Like it's, it's very, um, there's, there's violence, but it's like punching bad guys and sending them flying with energy. Like it's not, it's not, um, gory or anything like that. Yeah, Ms. Marvel was the one comic series that we had on our pull list from the local comic shop when it started because we really liked what they'd done with the character. Obviously, Kamala Khan seemed like a really interesting change-up for Ms. Marvel, and like it, it was a, a really cool series. We ended up dipping from that when it started to fold into the rest of what was going on with Marvel. There was mm -hmm. like a um like a global event that happened across all the other comics and then it just kind of went oh okay that's now tied into all of that stuff we don't have the time to subscribe to all of these other different comics as well the other thing that i've noticed on disney plus that i thought oh i forgot that existed and now i really want to watch it now i have the opportunity is the um the spider-verse animated movie um is oh. it into the enter the spider verse yeah the, the miles morales one i i've heard amazing good. things about that yeah oh. yeah and i I really, I'm really disappointed that I missed it at the time, but now that it's available to us on Disney Plus, I'll uh, definitely put that on the to watch list. So I rewatched that recently after I bought my Govee television lights 
last year. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. And so <laughs> like whenever, I mean, it is a very bright movie and, and yes. lots of neon. It's almost cyberpunky in its look. And, and the, the way that my living room reacted to like the pinks and the yellows and the spider sense and like, it was fantastic. Like it really mm -hmm. was a, a cool experience. Uh, excellent, excellent movie. Re animation in that is so good. All my animation friends just nerd out over that film constantly. We can move into a quick listener email before we get into the main discussion. Uh, this comes in from Lord Valor. More game suggestions. Hello, Joel and Johnny. The last time I sent a listener email, I suggested the game Subnautica and still do. This time around, I have a different game to suggest. Dark Souls 3 is a game that I have been diving into and surprised me with how much I enjoyed playing it. While it is well known uh, as a game and is said to be very hard, it's challenging but rewarding. If, like you, Joel, don't like to be one shot by enemies, while times that can happen in Dark Souls 3, that just means you need to upgrade your character more in order to advance into the area. There are different classes, weapons, and spells to choose from when you play the game so that you can really adapt a playstyle to one that you enjoy. I am someone who likes to 100% complete games, so I've been working hard on getting all of the achievements. While the lore and gameplay can be a bit confusing at times, my overall experience with this game is positive. I recently bought the DLCs for the game as well. Thanks for providing a wonderful podcast and all of your great work, Lord Valor. Thanks very much, Lord Valor. Uh, always good to hear from you and uh, always good to have another game suggestion. I have never played Dark Souls, uh, any of them, uh, and I've I've been shying away from them because I've I've heard that they are of that kind of difficulty where it might end up being more frustrating than fun for for someone that that prefers a little bit more of an action RPG than something that's like the rogue lights and, and things that while on the surface I can get into them, I reach a point where they get difficult, where I can know my skill as a video game player just doesn't get me past where I want to be. I had that experience with um, Hades, the one that you recommended, Johnny. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and I liked it a lot and I loved the story and the art direction and stuff, but the game just got really hard for me and the punishing deaths were just like, I don't know if I really want to go through all of this again. Um, especially when you have to like go through one boss to beat the next boss, that kind of thing. Uh, so I have not tried Dark Souls 3. Uh, the latest game that I have picked up, I can't recommend it because I have not played it yet, but I've seen very good things about A Plague Tale Requiem. Uh, that is part of my uh, Xbox Game Pass on Xbox Series X, and I have downloaded it, installed it, and I just have not tried to play it yet. Um, but I watched a review struggling to remember the name of the person that uh, that reviewed it i will try to look that up but uh and they had very very good things to say about it and i've watched a number of their videos and they seem to have the same sort of like balanced opinion they'll tell you when something is not great uh or what to expect or they'll say like look it doesn't look like a brand new game but the gameplay and the fun really outweighs the fact that it doesn't look like a 2022 title uh not talking about requiem but talking about something else so i thought all right well i, I trust their opinion and um and I feel like I'm probably going to enjoy uh, a Plague Tale. From the gameplay, it looks like you kind of have to do a little bit of sneaking, maybe a little bit of fighting, but mostly like it's a story-based kind of RPG. Um, but the reason why I wanted to bring Lord Valor's email on is because I know you have played uh, one of the Souls games and and really liked it. You, we've spoke in great deal about um, Elden Ring on the render distance. So I wonder if you could elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, so Elden Ring is by the same developer as the Souls games. It's not in the same series, strictly speaking, but it uses a lot of the same gameplay mechanics. It's a different setting, but a lot of similar kind of approaches to, to the gameplay. And it is quite punishing in the same way that the Dark Souls games are. 
Um, I've never played any of those before Elden Ring, and the reason I picked Elden Ring up was because I knew by reputation that From Software, the developers of the Dark Souls series, are really good at environmental storytelling, and I wanted to use that as a case study for environmental storytelling that I could bring into the Minecraft world on Empire's SMP, which for folks who aren't familiar is my current multiplayer series on YouTube where myself and a bunch of other content creators are kind of building the story of a world and building the story around us as characters. My role in that is a lot more behind the scenes. I don't tend to do much character work on camera, but I like to build backstory for the world. And that's one of the things that kind of appealed to me about the way Elden Ring works. There's a lot of environmental storytelling, there's a lot of item descriptions that give you more detail if you want to read through some of those. It's kind of like reading the flavor text on Magic the Gathering cards to get an idea of the story, and then you use them to bash your opponent's head in, you know? It's that kind of that kind of thing. Like, you, you learn the story behind the fireball that you're throwing at them. Um, so yeah, my, my first playthrough of Elden Ring got to about 140 hours, and I beat the main campaign, I still feel like I missed a lot of the side content that you can do. And part of that was just my relative inexperience with the control scheme and how you're supposed to approach combat, so I probably would go through it a little faster now that I'm more familiar with it, but even so, there was a bunch of stuff that I missed. I can't imagine going for all of the achievements in that game because some of them were like, collect every single weapon that's in the game and have like the full arsenal of weapons. And I stuck to a very specific type of character build after a certain point, so I wasn't that interested in keeping all of the weapons. But curious to see how long that would take people in terms of an overall completion. Uh, as far as Elden Ring's action, I've heard it improves on the kind of quality of life elements from the Souls games, largely by giving you checkpoints before major boss fights, where in Dark Souls, if you lost to a boss, you would have to slog your way back from the previous bonfire through all of these different rooms that have harder to hit enemies and all of that kind of stuff until you got back to the boss room and you're probably down half of your health potions and you don't necessarily make much of an improvement. Whereas a lot of the boss fights in Elden Ring have these effectively respawn checkpoints right before the boss room, which means you don't have to slog your way back through everything. You can just get back in, focus on that fight, focus on the strategy and what you might have missed about the fight the first time around. Um, the open world setting of Elden Ring also makes it much easier to level up without having to grind encounters, which is one of the criticisms I've heard of the original Souls series. And I think that gets better by Dark Souls 3, but again, not that familiar with those games. Elden Ring I would recommend to anybody who is curious about that series, because it will get you primed for the type of action that you can expect to find in a Souls game without some of the older trappings of the series that really weigh it down and make it less accessible to newcomers. I think that's maybe the biggest hurdle for me with these kind of games is that it's it's not as accessible in terms of the Dark Souls series to someone that's that's new to this kind of genre. And um, I and I, I want to say, like, I think it's, it's also worth knowing the kind of gamer that you are. And if it's this is the kind of thing that you like, then you might want to follow Lord Valor down the Dark Souls path. Um, and and for me, I, I know that I generally don't enjoy these things. I tend to end up playing open world games, things like No Man's Sky, although I haven't been in that in a while um satisfactory minecraft uh i'm playing hard space shipbreaker on the xbox sometimes in the evenings mm -hmm. just for fun and like that is a chill game uh there's not it's a very very lean back experience 
um, and topsy-turvy for folks that, you know, have like vertigo issues, just FYI. Um, but in terms of like some sort of action RPG, I'm trying to think the last one that I would have played and I, I didn't quite get its grips into me, but I enjoyed the bit that I played was Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And that tends to be like where I land is that yes, you have to sneak around. No, you don't want to get detected. And if you get detected, sometimes it ruins the mission and you have to start over. But if you do end up engaging with someone, it's not like, you know, two hits and you're dead sort of deal. Uh, yeah. and if, or if you do get hit, you can counter and you can potentially heal or, um, that kind of thing. And I, I do find that that mechanic, um, helpful for my gameplay. Now, whether that's, you know, too easy for some people, that could be true. Um, I I'm, I'm experienced the low health, uh, issue with the cycle frontier, which I've talked about with you on the render distance. And it's the same idea where that game being competitive and online with, with PVPVE, uh, you really like, if you get attacked by a local monster and it takes you down by half, they're not that hard, but you can definitely be in a wrong place at the wrong time and get, yeah. get swarmed. You really have to heal. You can't neglect that because that is one shot from another player and you're toast. Like you have to be at full health all the time. When I watch yeah. when I watch people stream that game, even if they're down, like it looks like you have a big health bar, but you've got kind of like it takes five of your stim packs to heal yourself. And in a very similar frame to like a Mario game or something like that, it's like you've got five hearts, right? Or five hearts in Minecraft, where if if one hit was one heart. So like if somebody shoots you, you might lose two or three hearts. You know, like it's yeah. it's you only have a couple of bullets and you're done. And one of the biggest uh, criticisms I've seen of the game uh, in terms of the new season is that the time to die is too quick and it's not fun because you as a player do not have time to use your skill to react and perhaps save yourself from someone camping or someone that just happened to get a good beat on you. You know, like you can't necessarily turn around and heal and get back in the fight because if they shoot you one more time before you can get that done, you're out. That's if they don't mm -hmm. one shot you. Like if you were less than 100% when you came around that corner, you have no chance. If someone's got a, a, a powerful shotgun, you're just toast. And so, unfortunately, there are players that are abusing that, but um, that's different, I guess, with than Dark Souls Three, because of course it's a multiplayer situation, and you have meta stuff to worry about in in that in that sense, meta gameplay. But, um, but yeah, I I would like to have a good kind of sword and swashbuckling like arrow kind of RPG to get into, because I I tried to get into. Um, Skyrim and I just I just couldn't get quite in there uh it is an older game and and I would like to try and do more there was one that came out too called Chivalry 2 I think on Xbox Game Pass but it looks more like a battle simulator than any kind of story it looks more just mm -hmm. like throw you into the mix of like swords and arrows and stuff um but I haven't uh haven't come across and I also have to like I look at my gameplay and say like I haven't even close to started Assassin's Creed Val Valhalla maybe I should see that through before I you know, try to get down on another game. And as much as I like Game Pass and enjoy the value of it, there's also that Netflix problem of just like, well, which game do I try next? I'm kind of bored with all the free games that are in my inbox right now. I say free, I'm paying for them with a sub, but it's it's one of those things that, you know, you you you. it's a hard thing for me to bail on a Netflix series. I'm not sure if, if you're the same way. Like once I start something, I feel compelled to finish it. And I it, yeah. it stays on my watch list thinking, oh, I'll get back to that. And it's a long time before I kind of decide, nope, I don't like that. 
it was bad. <laughs> and then I deleted it off my watch list. And I'm the same with video games. Like if I download something, it's like, it's okay. Like it's, it was fun for a bit, but I'm not like gripped by it. It sits on my Xbox for months, you know, some indie adventure title that was like, it was fun for a few minutes, but like, if I don't get back to it, it's like, Joel, Joel just delete it. Like just yeah. remove it and, and move on. If you want a story of commitment uh, to a to a video game, I I have one for you because my my brother in law Chris uh, has been streaming on Twitch for a while. Has taken a break lately for health reasons, but um, he's most recently played Jedi Fallen Order, which I think is worth comparing to the Dark Souls and Elden Ring kind of things in terms of, obviously it's a Star Wars setting, which is going to appeal to a lot of people, but the focus is on combat. There's a lot of boss fights that are slightly longer slogs and tests of skill rather than it just being like a button mashing kind of thing, right? Um, but Chris was getting into Jedi Fallen Order a while ago and had to stop playing because he has pretty severe arachnophobia and there was a heavy emphasis on spider-like enemies for a while. And he was playing on, I think, PlayStation and has switched to PC because there is a modding community on PC that has been able to mod out the spider-type enemies. So he ended up playing that on, on stream, had a great time watching that with his community and hanging out in the stream. And right at the end of the game... He is having a fight with a major villain of the series, and right as that fight ends, he runs into a game-breaking softlock that causes him to reset from the previous checkpoint, and then every time he re-entered that fight, it basically froze and softlocked. And, wow. you know, it, it would the character would push him back into a corridor, and then it would push him basically out of the cutscene that he was in, and it'd just revert to him running around in a corridor, but he couldn't trigger the cutscene again, so he would end up just frozen in this corridor. And we were looking up, we were, like, Google-fooing this entire thing. We were looking up, like, glitches that people can maybe use to get out the, on the outside of this level using a flying glitch where you just repeat the same action over and over again it takes you higher and higher up to try and see if he could find a cutscene trigger somewhere else that would, like, fix it for him, and it never happened. So we ended up, like, the most anticlimactic thing, having to watch the ending on YouTube because he was literally five seconds away from the final cutscene of the game so much as i would love to recommend jedi fallen order to people based on that experience alone it seems to have issues that just never got fixed and there is effectively like a game breaking thing where i don't know some switch gets flipped somewhere and there's a small chance that your game will just end in you being soft locked and not being able to see the final part of the game oh that sucks and that was actually recommended to me uh because of the star wars connection but also uh, I was put off by what I heard about it being compared to Dark Souls 3. However, Jedi Fallen Order has a story mode. Uh, my friend yes. Florette was mm -hmm. was quick to point that out because that's how she played it. And she was like, she, she doesn't like super hard games. She just wants the story and the fun, nerdy stuff, right? And and so um, it does have a story mode. But yeah, if it's glitchy like that, that's tough. I mean, it is part of Xbox Game Pass, so you're not going to pay for it like a full game release title. Uh, it'll be part of your subscription. But if, if if it's your time, that's the real value that you're dumping into it. Then, yeah, getting stuck like that would be very frustrating. Yeah, sure was. And uh, yeah, poor Chris. <laughs> but uh, overall, he took it in good humor and we we all had fun with it. We we made a lot of jokes at the game's expense, which kind of helped. But I can imagine that being like a solo experience on your couch at home, the most frustrating thing you can run into. 
Moving into the main discussion this week, we're going to be talking about The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, the season finale, uh, episodes seven and eight. Uh, we recorded a mid-season chat with Stephen ESC last week. Uh, this is going to be the season wrap-up with Johnny. Spoiler warning ahead, of course. Uh, most of you that are watching the show are more than likely like us, watching it the very moment that you have a chance <laughs> on Fridays when it was coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, if you have not, if you've been waiting to kind of maybe binge it all at once, maybe you're waiting for a partner or a friend, uh, just know that we cannot talk about this without spoiling some very major things that would definitely oh, yes. influence the way that you would look at the season. So, uh, so don't don't proceed until you've watched the entire season one of Rings of Power. We'll have links to the Rings of Power as well as things like the wiki page, IMDb, all that kind of stuff in the show notes for people that want to look up a little bit more. I will also link uh, a podcast that I've been listening to, and I think you listen to this as well, uh, Johnny, is uh, Decoding TV with David yeah. Chen and Don Marshall. Um, I have some differing opinions uh, with them, but the the thing that I like so much is the amount of Tolkien knowledge that Don Marshall brings. Uh, and Don Marshall is very careful about, like, if he's got a theory, he kind of checks himself to say, like, do I have this theory because of what I've seen in the show? Or do I have this theory because of my extensive book and appendices knowledge of the Lord of the Rings? And so when he gets into book spoilers, he kind of bites his tongue. And yeah. I appreciate that. I think that it, it, but, but on the flip side, if it's, if it's knowledge that really doesn't matter plot wise, but it's super cool, he shares it. And it's really fun to know because I don't have that, that experience. And you are much more versed in the Tolkien universe than, than I am. So I'm looking forward to, to our chat about this. So overall, I guess we can start with kind of like our broad strokes on the, on the season. We'll focus a little bit, maybe more on the last few episodes, but uh, how did you feel about the rest of the season? Cause last time we spoke, uh, on this show, it was just one, two, and three were what we talked about. Yeah. And I've really enjoyed it overall. I think I would, I, I don't like to give number ratings for things, but I'd give it a 7.5 out of 10. I think it's doing a lot of stuff, right? I don't think it's going to be for everyone. I think it's still where it was when I talked about it on our first show on this, where I don't rate it as highly as the Peter Jackson trilogy of movies, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, that is, because The Hobbit was also a trilogy that I don't rate at all. I think The Hobbit is the, the other end of the scale, the bad end. And I think this show is still comfortably in between those two. I think it is maybe edging slightly further over towards The Hobbit than it was when I last spoke to you, but I think overall it's just been great to spend more time in Middle-earth in the same way that it's great to return to the Star Wars universe, in that things never quite go the way you hope they will, they never quite live up to your, like, almost, you know, naive and childlike expectations of, of the way you want these things to go. You want to be transported by the stuff that got you into this series in the first place. And it never quite lives up to that, but at least you're along for the ride. And they've done a beautiful job of bringing Middle-earth to the screen, even if some of the choices they've made as far as plot, pacing, writing, all of the stuff that people have been pulling out as criticisms. One thing I haven't heard much criticism about at all is the art direction, the design. Mm -hmm. I've heard a bit about costumes, but I think the costumes are fantastic. And I think overall the acting in the show is superb, given the type of material they have and the type of stuff they have to live up to. I think they're doing a really good job of portraying the characters as written, and obviously some people are going to have their their issues with that. Um, I have sort of, to, to go back on what you were saying about how I'm a little bit more steeped in, in Tolkien's world than, than you might be, 
I've sort of given up on using what I know of Tolkien's writing to set my expectations for this show for a couple of reasons, and it's mainly through listening to podcasts like Decoding TV and a few others. I've been watching Rings and Realms on YouTube. I've been listening to the Rings of Power wrap-up, which is done by some of the people who've been involved with an ongoing show called the Prancing Pony podcast, um, in which they're basically reading through um, Lord of the Rings, as the original books, and and kind of giving their thoughts on those each time, discussing some of the history of it. Um, Nerd of the Rings on YouTube is also a great channel for digesting some of this stuff with a view to what people know about the lore of Tolkien going into the show. But I've found, I've concluded really, that Tolkien's writing is a lot more like the Bible than I realised when I compared the Silmarillion to the Bible in our last episode. It's that both sides of an argument about what this show is doing can find quotes that prove or reinforce their point. You know, they right. can quote Tolkien saying, like, I don't like allegory and I don't like this or that. And then you can find moments in Tolkien where he contradicts himself and leaves some of that stuff on the table for people to use. You can find moments where people try and pull out this idea that Galadriel couldn't have been going around with this guy and not knowing it, but then you find some of Tolkien's writing about Galadriel that suggests that maybe she is more focused on other aspects of herself and is looking less outward. And like some of the stuff that the writers have quoted after this most recent episode, um, there's a couple of moments in the text of Lord of the Rings where they say Galadriel says something to Frodo that made us think, what if she actually means this more literally and it's not just her trying to explain what's happening now in broad strokes what if that's a reference to her past and so the show is heavily interpretive which is not a bad thing but what it's doing is kind of like a what if scenario for some of the stuff that Tolkien wrote and either saying what if we take this part of this incredibly literally and when Galadriel says you know the Dark Lord is ever seeking me and I know his mind what if that means that the two of them met in an earlier time in Galadriel's life and she's basically spent the rest of that time either hiding from him or trying to work from the shadows to foil the rest of his plans and the, there's some moments like that that you think, okay, I see what they're trying to do. It's not what I expected them to do. And it does require you to kind of imagine this as being like a heavily interpreted thing rather than to the letter of what's written in Tolkien's books. But I've started, found, I found myself trying to judge the show purely on its own merits. Like, does it work as a show? Does the show on its own tell a good story? Is it satisfying? Does it make sense? And with a couple of frustrations, I think the answer to that is mostly yes. I have been enjoying myself in this show, and I am looking forward to there being a season two whenever that happens. Yeah. I, I, Stephen and I last week had some nitpicks, uh, but they were very specific. And it it doesn't keep me from coming back or being excited to watch the show every week when, when it's yeah. on. Uh, certainly has me in tune for, for season two whenever that happens, especially knowing that Amazon had to agree to five seasons in order to get the rights to do this. So you know it's not just going to be one and done. If season one was received poorly, they're still going to make five because they've invested an awful lot of money and they're very likely going to see it through. I certainly hope so. I, I hope that there isn't some clause somewhere that says, actually, if this absolutely bombs, then we can pull it, because I do want them to see this through, mostly because I think they've omitted a lot of stuff from this season that would be 
a really important element and they've held it back for season two to explain some of the things that I'm still confused by about season one. And I expect part of that is the TV writer's urge of, well, I want to get people involved in watching season two. By the time season one ends, I want them to be craving more of this. Therefore, let's hold some of that stuff back. But I think a lot of people are dismissing that as poor writing or bad planning on their part when I think it's a little bit more, um, what would the word be, like focused and, and considered and, and planned than that. I think it's it's a little bit more intentional that they're keeping some of that stuff back which brings frustrations in right now, but an overall look at this from a few years' time when we have season two, potentially three, and, and beyond is potentially going to see this season in a completely different light. And I think that's part of viewers still adjusting to we get Star Wars movies, but now we get Star Wars series. And people yeah, complain mm. that they're too slow off the start after two episodes. It's like there's there's six episodes or there's eight episodes. They've told us there's more coming. How can you judge an entire series on the first hour, right? Yeah, it's, right. it's like judging an entire film on the first 20 minutes, which like it just is silly. No one ever does that, right? Well, I yeah. mean, not no one, but like, you, you know what I mean? Like it, 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 it would be, <laughs> an, do. It, yeah, it would be an, it, you would be seen as like, well, you're not giving it much of a chance. Uh, and I mean, I would also agree that, you know, films and television shows should try to maybe grab viewers attention early on. Uh, but one of the advantages we'll say in streaming is that they don't have to please advertisers. They don't necessarily have to have that old school media television format where you have to have everybody tuning in for this one show and you have to wrap up everything in this one show. Otherwise you're just going to tank. And, and I appreciate the slower pacing in most cases. Uh, but I find that a lot of what I've seen in terms of the negative feedback about Rings of Power has been, you know, in some ways justified about the pacing, not because it's too slow or too fast. It's just because I can't decide what to do and it's inconsistent. Yes. And that would be my my own my overall greatest criticism of the show is that it can't decide if it wants to be a traditional television show or if Amazon wants to grab the reins and say, we are the streaming platform. We can make this show as long or as short or as fast and as slow as we want. Yeah. But the problem is they can't decide which they want to do. They keep on flip-flopping between a really slow, intelligent burn or telegraphing plot points to you by writing them on the screen, literally. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. there's we'll moments, get to that. Yeah, there's moments like that that make me roll my eyes and, and I get really frustrated. But uh, to, to your point and what you said, uh, I find the show from an art direction and a cinematography um, standpoint to be stellar. It is transportative. I do not feel like I'm watching a TV show. I feel like I'm watching a film that's eight hours long and I feel like I am in Middle Earth. I'm, I don't feel like I'm in my living room when I watch it. It's, it's very, very good. And a lot of that is the combination between the set dressing and the art direction and the effects and everything that they've done combined with excellent, excellent acting from almost everyone. I would entirely agree. I think I think the cast for this show, even though like a lot of them are relative unknowns and whatnot, like that was the same was true of the Fellowship of the Ring cast when Peter Jackson started out. Like we think of Orlando Bloom as somebody we've seen in all of these different things now, but then I'm like, wait a second, like he was he was a baby when they made when like they made Fellowship, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Like there's and there's so many people who've we've seen in different things since then, but we're we're really if not starting out their careers, then at least relatively under the radar at that point, who are 
giants of cinema <laughs> after a certain point. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the standouts to me are Morpeth Clark as Galadriel, Markella Cavanaugh as Nori, Daniel Wayman as The Stranger, Lloyd Owen as Captain Ellendil, and Robert Arameo as Elrond. Those are like, I mean, there's lots of other good performances, but those are the ones who like when they're on screen, I absolutely am just enamored by what they're doing. Yes. Uh, and it's in very specific ways. And, and I think it's, it's great. And like, I was happy when we received more character development for Galadriel, maybe in the last three episodes than we have in the entire series, because oh, yes. for a while I was really kind of getting <laughs> worried about like, you know, stern face armor Galadriel being like kind of like a one, one note, uh, despite how good her presence is, I was, uh, the writing is what I was concerned with. Like, God, I hope they give her more than just this. Like she, yeah. she's obviously got some, we saw that in, in, in early on, but it's very quickly been moved to, to just like battle hardened, you know, warrior Galadriel, uh, which I like too, but like, I, you know, I want a little bit more wisdom and elf kind of presence in that way. And they got there, they got there in, in the end, which I'm, I'm really happy about. Episode seven in particular had quieter moments of character growth, especially in the aftermath of Mount Doom erupting. But then the scenes we got between Galadriel and Theo in particular were a huge highlight for me. And it was that. It was the turn of Galadriel's character after her conversation with Adar, where he says, you're effectively no better than me, and probably even worse than me in terms of being Morgoth's successor, hunting down and exterminating an entire race of people just because you don't like them. And obviously there's a, there's a lot going on in that scene in general, but before that even, with her conversation in Numenor with Halbrand, as he's called then, we'll get to that as well, um, <laughs> her conversation in the Forge with Halbrand where she's effectively saying, I can't stop, like I don't know how to not live this warrior's life, you start to put together a picture of Galadriel effectively living with PTSD. You know, she's been traumatized by the events of her past and the death of her brother, and as we find in episode 7, the apparent loss of her husband. And that was a revelation to people who know the books and had been pointing to, wait a minute, Galadriel should be married by this point in the show. I think I even brought that up on our previous episode. Turns out she was the entire time, and it is assumed that he has gone away to war and Galadriel might believe that he is dead. Either way, what we know in the show is that he has never been seen again. Now, he does show up in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, so it turns out that he was around or maybe comes back. We will wait to see how the show ends up resolving that. But we learn that in those scenes between Galadriel and Theo, and it is at that point when she sees Theo, she sees this young person whose life is about to be shaped by the experiences he has been through. He has been touching the darkness, um, quite literally in the fact that he has held that cursed sword in his hands that we see used to effectively start the eruption of Mount Doom and the conversion of the Southlands into Mordor. He was part of that journey. And so she sees herself reflected in him and goes, no, you should move away from this path and starts dispensing wisdom that you feel like she is finally taking herself. Mm -hmm. She's starting to take her own advice from episode seven onwards. And that's where you see the rage of that character, if not subside, then at least become more controlled. You start to see the wisdom of the character come forward. It starts to connect her with the Kate Blanchett Galadriel that we know from the films and people who've read the books, the Galadriel that we see in the Mirror of Galadriel chapter. And it also continues into episode eight, where eventually she gives up the symbol of her rage, of her 
vendetta against Sauron, which is weird considering she's just met him. Um, but she she gives up the symbol of her brother Finrod in order for it to be melted down and made into two of the elven or three of the elven rings of power it's not entirely clear but um yeah it's it's an interesting journey for galadriel and i think the end of the series uh, then the end of this season has tied up what people were worried about in that character and is hopefully putting that character on a trajectory that's going to continue through the next three or four seasons i really like the sacrifice of the dagger i especially because we've been seeing her carry that drop it have it handed back to her like it's been a very key sidearm in a lot of ways for for galadriel and having to leave that really does feel like also leaving her current mental state like leaving her current way that she's focusing all that anger and all this hatred for orcs and sauron and everything else and and refocusing it into a more balanced way to fight the enemy, right? You have to, yeah. you have to not just out maneuver them on the battle battlefield, but out maneuver them mentally. You know, like yes, w- with and- wisdom and patience and and all of those things. And I feel like they did a really good job of like giving you a physical thing that had to be melted down, and st- it's still part of her like she's still yeah, like still we, with her yes yeah, so they get they get the rings in the end so she if she, she's they don't, i don't remember them ever picking them up they don't like assign the rings to anybody in this but it, it will be no surprise to book readers to understand that galadriel does get one of them and i feel like that's an excellent way of like it's been reshaped it's been refocused it's 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 no longer a weapon but it's it's a ring of of power and i and i and I, or part of a ring of power and I think that's an excellent way to kind of illustrate that to, to people. And for me, it really helped um, with Clark's performance as well, because she got to be a lot broader in, in terms of, you know, sneaking around and getting, you know, family tree information in the library and, and um, thoughtful moments of pause and helped communicate to the viewer, like, wait a minute, this main character that I respect a lot has just had her attention drawn by a line from from Kella Brimbor, right? And you're just kind of like, oh, wait a minute, he's Adar said that, didn't he? And yeah, like, yeah. you can see her her elf ears perk up, and it's 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 a good way. It's a good way to tell the viewers your ears should have perked up too. And yeah. it's much better in those subtle ways than some of the other ways that the show tends to to have it. I find that the show can kind of ba- uh, flip flop between some very scripted moments, like very like, wow, that was kind of like writing it on a sign and beating the viewer over the head with it compared to some more subtle kind of like intelligence between the lines. You have to figure out what's happening. You have to understand that there's something happening beyond just normal human existence. Like for example, the the stranger is a good example in that we all, we understand via the Harfoots, the amount of time that passes with the stranger but he starts off barely speaking and then every other scene we get with him, he has a much, much broader vocabulary and sounds a lot more like a normal man than he does yeah. broken English and everything else. And he looks less and less confused. And they don't ever tell you why. They don't ever tell you what is happening to him. They might flash some lights. They might make him give a strained face. But whenever he does something, he ends up on the other side of it stronger. And you have to be paying attention to see that pattern. And I like that. I like that sort of that form of storytelling better than than I do um, getting really obvious with with stuff. 
Uh, and I, I think that with episode seven, specifically the eye with Galadriel and Theo, that also helped me be a more interested in Theo. Cause I yes. just last week said like, I don't give a shit about Theo. I really, he's just, a, he's, <laughs> he's the dumb teenager doing dumb teenage shit in my fantasy show and it needs to stop. I was happy when they started to turn Theo around when he actually spoke to Arondir and said, hey, I've got this hilt of this sword. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I, I know that I've got something evil here and he starts to actually make good decisions. And I think the, the turn there is Galadriel handing him her sword, which is not only a thing for Galadriel because Elrond says in the first episode, put up your sword, you know, your job is done. And that's very symbolic for her to hand over her sword and then hand over the dagger in the following episode. But for Theo, he's holding a sword that came from one of the most good characters in the show. Like, one of the, the, the people that you are pretty certain from both what the show is telling you and what the broader story in the books and the other movies is telling you. Galadriel is on the side of good. And so he's being handed a weapon that came from that and told, there is weight to this but you can learn to use it. And being handed a, a sword that doesn't come from darkness and that lust for power is obviously going to be big in terms of Theo's character development. Something that I picked up on those scenes as well, which is true from the Peter Jackson films, it's true from the books, is I often compare uh, some of the situations and specifically dialogue that Tolkien um, puts in. I mean, in, in this case, it's it's the showrunners for, for Rings of Power. Uh, referring to war, specifically the First World War, Second World War. Yeah. Uh, and and you can see Theo's, um, not excitement, but like his willingness and desire to get into the fight, right? He wants to, he knows he's part of the problem. Like he knows he's made some mistakes and he wants to amend those. Like he wants to jump up and, and get into the battle. And Galadriel is quick to say like, look, we, there's too many of them. Like we, you need patience. You need to, to temper your, your anger and, and more intelligently aim it, have a strategy, uh, be patient and do not be so quick to run off to war because like you think you've seen it, you haven't even touched the surface kid. Mm -hmm. And, and I yeah. think that it like that, I think is a, is a is a strong message I think throughout a lot of what I remember from the books and and from the Peter Jackson films. I feel like there's a lot of that later on uh, which we'll get to that I in a good way in that they compare again like um orcs and the evil in the show they do a really good job of not making it just evil for evil's sake even though that can work in the in the Peter Jackson films Sauron and the bad guys are just dark and evil and that's fine. Yeah. Cuz in fantasy yeah. you get it. Like it's a flaming eye next to a volcano. Bad guy. <laughs> Sold. Yes. Like no, does not need explaining. Um but then in this there's hints to dictatorship, there's hints to like with the orcs having more of a purpose, having being freed slaves, they have a motivation. Like I'm not saying you're going to pity them or side with them at all, but it at least gives you a clear motivation and or delusion it almost makes the bad guys in this show feel more dangerous because they're yeah. not just mindless evil. They're not just killing for the sake of killing. They're killing because they want their own stake in the world or they have a plan that they feel will better the world. It just so happens that the rest of the world disagrees with that plan. Yeah. And I think that that's an excellent way to set things up for the next few seasons because it's 
it would get very tired of like you don't you you don't want to turn Sauron into Skeletor, you know, from from <laughs> He Man, yeah, right? Yeah. Like the, the you don't want him mustache twirling and and finger smashing. Although they kind of did that in episode eight. I'm glad that there's a little bit of a longer burn on the motivation for the evil in the show, and they do a good job of communicating those higher concepts through dialogue, through visuals, whether it be a dream sequence or some like a reflection or like they do some very cool stuff to kind of communicate that that to you and and i think that that's one of the show's strengths um i would say my biggest criticism overall has been the pacing and in some ways i feel like they forced a lot in episode eight like i, I yeah. feel i feel like episode seven was a little bit slow wasn't my favorite minus the character development uh, and, and I feel like, you know, we got a lot of good stuff with Elendil and the queen. Is it Muriel? I think it's her name. Muriel. Yeah. And Elendil immediately in the aftermath of apparently losing Isildur, which yes. we know from the, the movies and the books is clearly not what happens overall, but is at least what's happening to the character at that moment. People found it kind of strange reading about this online when it was like we were getting some sort of fake out that Isildur was dead. And it's like, yeah. as far as we know, if you consider the show on its own merits, he's dead. And as far as the characters in the show are supposed to feel, he's dead. They've left him behind and sailed back to Numenor. They are assuming he is numbered among the dead and they haven't gone through and done like a perfect head count because a volcano just exploded and they need to leave. So it's, yeah, it, it's kind of interesting the way we're supposed to immerse ourselves in the show leading to suspending disbelief about some of the stuff that we already know about the future but we get to see elendil's grief we get to see miriel dealing with the loss of her vision and the two of them pairing together that way elendil effectively becoming you know the queen's bodyguard at this point right hand man sort of with them having the connection of being two of the the faithful characters, the ones who still believe in the old ways of worship for the Valar and that the elves should be their friends and that kind of stuff. At odds with the political situation that's developing in Numenor where they want to be more independent and more self-righteous about what they are owed and that's going to lead into some interesting places in future seasons. I was not like entirely convinced by... Elendil and Muriel's interactions in episode 7 especially Elendil's expressions of grief and it seemed like he was having a turn and he was going to turn to more the side of the Numenorean sort of approach to elves bad especially after Galadriel led them there in the first place only to lead to his son dying but then they resolve that beautifully in episode 8 where they have that conversation on the boat and they're intimately sharing with each other this is what it means to me to be faithful. It means that regardless of what happens, regardless of the cost, we have faith that whatever happens is happening for a reason and that ultimately good will win out. And that's one of the key themes of Tolkien's work is the idea that when all hope seems lost, you have faith in either a higher power or just in the fact that you are a smaller part of a bigger story. 
It's what you find Sam expressing when they're on the slopes of Mount Doom and there's a gap in the clouds and he's able to see the stars and realizes that he is a small hobbit in a big world and whatever the shadow is is just a passing thing. It's the speech that uh, they take for Bronwyn to give to Theo in the episode right before the, the mountain explodes. <laughs> so there's there's so much to that theme in Tolkien's work that it manages to carry it through so well in that scene between Elendil and Muriel. And I think this is a really good example of them making what I feel is a misstep, which is that silly fake out that um, Isildur is dead, where they could have easily shown him not dead, separated from... They can Like, Elendil can still believe that he's dead. I don't think you have to try to fake out the viewer because you're wasting your time. Sure, yeah. And, and I feel like they just need to go that little bit further to either show him, like, captured by orcs or separated by some lava flow or like i don't like insert whatever tool you want to make sure that he and his father are separate and they both assume the other has not made it his horse knows he's not dead so that's (laughs) that's about as far as we get i think you can still get allendale's essentials grief for the story but without the fake outs because that's the thing that i i do i did tire and that's where it's like the show is doing these fake outs like is the strangers sauron is you know halbrand sauron is sauron even a character in the show yet you know like have we met him yet is it going to happen this season next season and i feel like there was this constant kind of like is adar sauron like does they kind of like drop all these hints <laughs> constantly D- down to characters basically being to both the stranger and adar saying like you are sauron right <laughs> like yeah. that's basically what ends up happening yeah. twice yeah and then they're like oh no it's it's halbrand sorry sorry yeah. we forgot to tell you it's halbrand halbrand and and that's the thing where it's just like it it goes from especially in that and well it was a cool scene with the three uh shapeshifters mystics mystics, the mystics. The mystics that that are uh, have kidnapped the the stranger or not kidnapped him they've captured him I guess there's a battle and they they are there to try and convince him that he is Sauron they and they stop him and you think they're going to be there to to eliminate him and then you, it ends up that they're there to like worship him and mold him and on one hand it was interesting in that you get the idea that you know the stranger in whatever sort of being he is later he even calls himself a wizard um but uh you get that idea that whatever power he is there's a risk in sending it to middle earth because if captured by the wrong people or if influenced by the wrong things this great power could very well be not good for middle earth like it could be destruction not light and good but it could be evil and peril uh, which is a battle that the stranger is dealing with, like trying to figure out wh- where his place in is in the world. And I mean, it's it's a it's akin to um, I can't remember what the name of the comic was. Red Sun. It's Superman lands in Moscow instead of yes, it is it is Red Sun. Yeah, instead yeah. of instead of uh, can instead of Kansas. And so, like you can imagine the the, the very different Superman that you get raised in Russia. Uh, and I feel like that's a it's kind of what they're hinting at. But at the same time. It turns these very scary, very well powerful mystics into like, really? You couldn't tell that wasn't Sauron? <laughs> yes. We all knew it wasn't Sauron, but you're like, you're the ones with the magic sauce and the we have to awaken him and we have to do all these things and we can tell from his power. And it's not until he decides to just tell you, 
by the way, I'm good. And they go, you're not Sauron. And we're we're just like, oh, no kidding. And it turned like, and he, I mean, it was a cool, powerful moment where he basically vaporizes them or at least banishes them. It wasn't clear that they were dead. Um, But they turn into these very wraith-like looking spirits. They, They obviously have all kinds of different evil going on in them. And he just dismantles them. And so not only are they not the brightest mystics in the box, they're also weak sauce. Outmatched. Once, yeah, once yeah. once once he wakes up, I mean they they're certainly dangerous to to the Harfoots. Um yep. but but definitely no match for for a wizard. Uh and which is cool. And it has that Superman moment and like I like I, I get all that and it's it's cool. Um and to what I said earlier about like every time the stranger does something powerful, he comes out the other side more aware of either what his purpose is, where he needs to go, or how he feels about who he is. And this is where I really started to enjoy his interactions, even the silent ones. I found the presence that that he has, you know, in terms of, you know, the the performance from Daniel Wayman, like really, really good. Uh, says an awful lot without saying anything at all. And yeah. I really admire that kind of uh, economy in what he was doing. And they eventually have a great conversation uh, nori and the stranger and she uses a um she talks to him about different things and he uses a couple of different words and um he said like in your tongue basically i would be a wizard you know and it's you the rest of the audience is going oh finally they've said out loud what we've been thinking this whole time and um i don't know i have a hard time and i think I would enjoy the fan service that they did here with the stranger more if they hadn't also ham fisted a lot of other stuff during the episode. Yeah. So at the end of the story with the stranger, uh, Nori leaves the Harfoot clan and she's going to go off with the stranger and they're going to go do their own things. And we still don't have a name for him. Uh, And they can't decide which way to go. And he says, you should lead. And she says, you should, you should lead. And he kind of looks around and then he verbatim quotes uh, uh, the, the Peter Jackson film. Uh, I believe Gandalf is talking to Pippin. They're it's in, Pippin or Mary. It's, one, yeah, of it's one of the junior hobbits. You one of the junior yeah. hobbits. And he goes, whenever, whenever you're, you know, in doubt, just follow your nose. The air smells less foul this way. And he does that. He goes, there's the air smells sweeter this way. He goes, uh, you know, Nori Brandyfoot. Whenever in doubt, just follow your nose. And I'm just like, well, that's cute. And very, very similar to what we you know, have heard in, in the Jackson films. Um, and obviously, I really feel confirms it's Gandalf. That's the thing. I, I think there are so many pieces of evidence you can pull from the stranger's character to prove him to be any of the wizards. And that's the mm. problem. Right now... He's going to Rune in the east, which is the one place Gandalf says, to the east I do not go in the books. And that may be because he had an experience there in the past and decided to never go there again. Um, But the two wizards that we know head to the east and to the south are the blue wizards, uh, whose names aren't given in Lord of the Rings, but their names are Alatar and Palondo. And... He also heals a tree at one point and speaks to beasts, which we know to be some traits of Radagast. I feel like that there are so many different things that they pulled together that I'm almost convinced he is in some way, spiritually speaking, all of the wizards. And I don't know if he's going to be Gandalf specifically 
until they actually say his name. Frankly, I don't really care which of them he is. I think it's just fun to have this wizard walking around and affecting the story in different ways. And it could go any number of directions, and I feel like I don't really have a specific alignment towards any of them. I feel like the blue wizard option is the most interesting for the show, because that's a story that's never been told on paper or on screen. And... I think the Gandalf thing would probably be the biggest crowd pleaser for the general audience. So I think it could go in a variety of directions. I don't think he's going to be either Saruman or Radagast because we know Saruman turns bad, so that would kind of leave a bad taste in the mouth of, mm -hmm. you know, the viewers who've seen Lord of the Rings. And I think Radagast just isn't cool enough, <laughs> to be quite honest no. with you. Like, I don't, I don't think he's the wizard everybody's been gunning for to be in this show. Um, so obviously they're playing around with the timeline. The wizards aren't necessarily supposed to have shown up in the second age, but frankly, neither has the Balrog at that point. And we've already seen a moment in Khazad-dum where we get a preview of the fact that the Balrog is down there and it burns up a leaf that falls down there after Durin the third throws it in there. So potentially like the Balrog is now the show's Chekhov's gun. We have to do at least something to do with the Balrog in later seasons, whether that's the entire fall of Khazad-dum or if it's just something to do with the current line of dwarves who, who live there, remains to be seen. But I, I think, regardless of who the stranger is, doesn't necessarily matter. I like him. <laughs> I like him and Nori together, and I'm glad they've continued that into the second season instead of the stranger just wandering off on his own and the Harfoots all staying together. The tearful goodbyes, they're pretty effective. I was surprised they split Poppy and Nori up, but Me Poppy too. clearly has a new role to play in the Harfoots, which I think is really interesting. And now that all of their wagons have been burned by the mystics in episode 7, I think it may be the start of us seeing the hobbits, as they will end up being, trying to find a place to settle down. Whether that's them meeting up with other similar halfling creatures or if that's just them eventually making their way over to the west of middle earth which is where we know the shire is we'll we'll see what happens um but I, i'm interested to see what happens now that effectively those two groups could be in season two as separate entities or they could just follow nori and the stranger for a while and maybe they meet up with the harfoots traveling caravan a little bit later I wouldn't mind seeing both. I, I certainly we're going to see more Nori and the Stranger, but I, I definitely would like to see more of the Harfoots. Uh, I feel like you get a lot of the show's humor and culture from the Harfoots, and they have that kind of fun, busybody sort of uh, way of, about things. And for all of our talk about you know war and those involved with it, I think the Harfoots illustrate a really good parallel of like the people that don't go to war the people that are just living their lives in you know a, a war-torn country or an adjacent war-torn country that are just affected by it yeah you know like the mystics come by and and burn their caravan because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time you know mm -hmm. and and i think that that's that's an important thing to have in the show i was surprised they split up poppy and nori as well i was disappointed i really like poppy yeah i really enjoyed the song that she sang about traveling and i like that she's is an interesting character that has lost her family and, and is her, she has to pull her own caravan and she's also very knowledgeable. Like she seems to be the new map reader, which to me is like, that's why she's not splitting up from the rest of the Harfoots. Cause then they wouldn't, yeah. they wouldn't have anyone to like decipher the maps and really figure out where to go. Um, and 
again, her running after Nori and say, Nori, Nori, I can't do it. I'm coming with you would be very Frodo and Sam. And yes, it would. It's on one hand, like, yeah, it would be cool because I like Poppy. But on the other hand, it would be very much like the the rings of power not really come up coming up with much original like it would be yeah, very on, on the other hand there's been enough fan service in this show yeah. already <laughs> let's give them something original for goodness sake and the thing to your point about you know the wizard not knowing specifically which one it is the the problem that i have with it if it's not gandalf it's not that i'm disappointed that it's not gandalf it's that if the show is going to be that blatant to quote gandalf essentially from the the, the lord of the rings movies and it's not Gandalf, then I can't trust any hint the show gives me. And that removes a lot of the fun. Yeah. Right? If it's if every hint, quote unquote, is going to be a misdirect, then you've cried wolf this entire season, and I don't believe you. And I just mm-hmm. can't like I just can't. It's the same reason why when the mystic said, We're here to serve you, Sauron, I was like, bullshit. Like yeah. <laughs> you've called six different people Sauron in this series. I don't believe you that it's this guy. You know, yeah. and I and I feel like that's that's one of the negative things about this constant old school writing for TV that they keep on doing these misdirects that are meant to be at the end of a 45 minute episode, you know, on television. And instead, these things are an hour and 20 sometimes and or an hour and 10. And they, they need to be more. Um, I would be happy if they were more subtle. And to get into the the, the final episode with, you know, the, the big reveal that Halbrand is Sauron and has been this whole time. Um, I knew something was off with Halbrand. Yeah. And I, I, I honestly, I don't know whether I've said this on the show, but I was, I was gunning for the witch king of Angmar. I was thinking, okay, so maybe Mm -hmm. he is a king. He's one of the nine Kings we have to find in, in for the nine rings of power that go to men. We know that those nine Kings of men are the nine ring rights as far as I know. Um, and so if he's this important or has these subtle, like there is something off with him and you, you got that from like the fight in Numenor where he was super powerful. You got like the, the off things that he would say. And there was something odd about him showing up with a, a, a wound that needed Elvish medicine, uh, right, in, in yeah. episode seven, like it all started to feel like, okay, he really, needs like it felt very staged somehow like how is he not dead sort of stuff and i got the idea that he was a human that was a servant of morgoth and and that was trying to attain for his past sins essentially yeah and and i thought that would have been a much better way to portray it but then the moment that they get to eregion he turns into a mustache twirling like, oh, hi there. <laughs> he really does, it's like, yeah. It's like, like, oh, hi, I'm better now. Is that a forge? Did you turn on the forge? Yeah. I have an idea for the forge. And everybody that knows anything about Lord of the Rings is going, God, really? Yeah, like, right. he's just yeah. like, you know, are you going to make something with that? That looks really cool. Ooh, what's this? Grabs the mithril from, like, this isn't the yeah. most important thing in the entire show. I'm just going to hold it. Like, and, and Celebrimbor is just going to be, there with him and say like here i've met you yesterday and you were unconscious at the time but i'll show you this (laughs) yeah and all he does is walk around and basically play celebrimbor's ego i'm just like are you the celebrimbor (laughs) like am i in the house of the greatest elven smith on the land and celebrimbor is just like ooh. I like this guy. It's like, oh, yeah, he's like, finally someone who understands my vision. (sighs) Um, yeah. So, one of the things going back to the stranger potentially being Sauron and the mystics kind of doing that when that started at the beginning of the episode, I thought, 
okay, cool. He's clearly not Sauron at this point because we've been given this whole thing like, is he good? Is he evil? He's clearly good. He's hanging out with the hobbits. It's He's chill. But I thought what the show might have been doing is that idea that you were sort of talking about where anybody could be Sauron, right? Sauron is more of an idea than he is mm -hmm. like an actual manifest entity at this point. And it's more like the shadow rising as a theme for the show rather than it being he is one of the characters that we've seen so far. And this is where my idea of it being connected to the books really died with this episode because the books have this character who comes in and is i mean th this is more written out in tolkien's notes than it is in any kind of narrative but sauron has been in a region pulling the strings behind the scenes for a while and in the book in the timeline presented by the books the rings for the dwarves and for the humans are forged before the three rings of the elves basically sauron does all of that stuff has influence in all of their creation goes away and then Celebrimbor makes the elven rings sort of in secret whereas this time around it felt like the opposite of that where we didn't get those 16 rings and Celebrimbor has forged all three of those in full knowledge that sauron was there but they just go ahead and do it anyway does galadriel ever tell them that he's sauron no she doesn't no. and and it it ties into the whole thing of him saying like you know what what would you what are people going to think if you told them that you, Sauron lives because of you and that kind of thing so mm -hmm. there is some guilt there we know that Elrond finds that scroll that she had at the end so he probably figured it out himself but Celebrimbor knows nothing about it at this point and that's going to be interesting to play into season two because Galadriel has said like nobody is to treat with Halbrand anymore if he comes back like chuck him out don't listen to him that's it but we know that the other 16 rings the seven for the dwarves and the nine for the humans have yet to be made <laughs> and they get made by Celebrimbor at least in the books um but with Sauron effectively weaving his way into it all as this other character in disguise so Halbrand is obviously an invention for the show um but I I was hoping that they were going to go that direction of like yes Sauron has maybe been there behind the scenes the entire time and it would tie in very well with what we've seen from Celebrimbor so far in the show because when he's talking to Elrond he seems kind of forgetful and and sort of like off in the clouds a little bit in the same way that we see Bilbo talking about the ring in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring movies he's he's effectively Charles Edwards I think is the the actor's name is effectively playing Celebrimbor like Ian Holm played Bilbo he has that well isn't that odd now kind of thing going on and you sort of suspect okay so somebody is like whispering poison into his ear the entire time and he's just not seeing it but then when he and Halbrand meet for the first time in the show none of that seems to have mattered because it's the interaction with Halbrand that leads to him making the rings in the first place. So you sort of think, what's going on with this character beforehand? And I wonder if that's something that's going to be borne out over the next season because I'm very confused about the way Celebrimbor has been acting if he is not already influenced by Sauron in some way. And maybe that's just the natural inclinations of that character. It's a character that Tolkien wrote very little about. But it does seem very confusing that he's had this sort of, you know, slightly distracted sense that maybe he's thinking about something else and maybe evil is already at work in his mind when he doesn't even meet Sauron until episode eight of the show. 
it, it really doesn't work for the way that character has acted. And likewise, some of the ways Halbrand acts, as far as, like, yes, there are all of these clues that he is Sauron, but there are also a great deal of clues that he was not. The fact that, you know, he explains some of that away by saying, like, oh, it was just telling you what you wanted to hear kind of thing with in the scene with Galadriel, where he says, you know, I wanted to remain in Numenor. You were the one who was saying we should come back here and that I should be king of the Southlands. But then when he's on his sickbed, when he's got this presumed wound that is may or may not have been real, um, he still has this air of like i'm not going to leave these people galadriel i don't want you to take me away let me stay with them and like you said he only becomes the mustache twirling villain in episode eight it feels like up until that point he is entirely believable as just a guy and they haven't stayed away from that so like the the misdirect is there as part of the show but it makes absolutely no sense for the character and if all of that stuff turns out to have just been like well i was lying the entire time this was all a deception it's so unsatisfying mm -hmm. if that's the case because it, it gives all of the human touches to his character like it, it just kind of throws them all in the bin there's completely there's no meaning to some of the stuff where he has seemed truly connected to that stuff so one quick aside from Tolkien's perspective, because what I've been reading from some of the, the scholars who have looked up letters to Tolkien's publishers that he wrote when he was trying to pitch them the idea for the Silmarillion and the stories of the Second Age that he had in mind, he was saying the theme of repentance, as far as Sauron is concerned, is one of the key aspects to the character in the Second Age. After Morgoth is defeated, he is effectively told to return to valinor to face the judgment of the valar and he doesn't he stays in middle earth he is repentant he still thinks oh what have i done but effectively builds and builds in his power and then that's the point at which the character turns and becomes more evil so some of the idea of a repentant sauron character is there in tolkien's own mind when he's writing some of this stuff but you have to know that in order to really appreciate what they're trying to do with his character and casual viewers of this I don't think are going to buy the fact that, like, the ultimate evil, like, the face, the literal flaming eye of evil that you were talking about earlier, right. the the very black and white depiction of these guys are, like, irretrievably bad. They are irredeemably evil. The idea that this show is trying to walk that back a little bit and say, well, hang on, there's a human side to Sauron that we really want to explore here. I don't think that really works on screen. And the problem becomes they have tried to humanize Sauron as a character by having him be there in human form. And at a certain point, that just switches. Almost like he turns on a dime, and it's that moment where he walks into Celebrimbor's Forge for the first time. It's very difficult to get my head around. According to the writers, season two is going to answer a lot of questions because now that the reveal that he is Sauron is out there, they can start to go into the decision-making that left him on a raft in the middle of the ocean, seemingly randomly running into Galadriel, which I think is still the case. It's almost like a Providence meeting, except Providence is supposed to work for the good guys and not the bad guys yeah. in Tolkien's world. So that's that's a curious aspect to all of this that I expect the writers will be under immense scrutiny for when season two comes around. And not to shit all over this, because there were some moments in the reveal that Hellbrand is Sauron that I did enjoy, and that was the yeah. confrontation with Galadriel by the river, where she's figured it out, and he reveals to her 
he's like, well, there's no sense in pretending. And he's not scared of her because of how powerful he is, right? Like he touches yeah. her once and just paralyzes her into her own mind and, 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 and talks with her there. And the way that the show communicated that he was Sauron by showing the Sauron reflection in the river next to Galadriel, that he has been courting her this whole time, not romantically, but in terms of uh, her thirst for power. The fact that she's yeah. on this precipice of, I can't stop fighting. I have to continue. I have to just keep swimming. Another line that she uses a couple times in the show. And I think the swimming thing was like after she's put down the sword and, and the rings are made. But um, but with but with the before that, it's I have to keep fighting because it's all I know how to do. And mm -hmm. and I think that he he definitely tempts her with all of that in a very cool way, uh, reflecting literally the speech that we get from Galadriel in in Fellowship of the Ring about like being a queen. And you were talking about that literal interpretation and yeah. like he offers it to her. He goes, I don't want to destroy this world. I want to rule it. I want to save it. It's there's something wrong with it. It's imperfect. Uh, we need to make it perfect. Sound familiar? Sounds like Hitler. Sounds like the Imperials from Star Wars. Like it just it. And that's one thing I did like about that. It it gives this evil a delusion, which is yeah. more dangerous than just evil for evil's sake. Uh, because it does draw parallels to real evil in our world. And, and I think it gives it a lot more weight in that he has a real motivation. He believes what he's doing is good for Middle Earth, which is bananas to everybody else. <laughs> but, but it makes him very dangerous. And I think that for all of the acting in the show that's pretty good, Halbrand for me uh, in that particular episode really wasn't the best like i it's i it's very difficult and this is a stereotypical thing but it's it's hard to take a really good looking actor and make them feel really evil and yeah and i yes. like I, he too kinda, handsome to be like, sour you're, you're, you're kind of broody and good looking um you know you're you're, you're aragorn 2.0 but you're a bad guy yeah. like i just it's 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 hard to swallow and it's it's pop culture it's it should be something that i should be able to take for what it's worth but we live in 2022 and like this is just this is a, this is a show we're watching and we have to kind of interpret it with the tools that we've been trained on, I guess, over the last few years of movies and cinema and, and television and streaming and stuff. And so that I found a little bit hard, but I like the visual. I like the way that they told it. I like that, you know, she's been bewitched somehow. It's weird that he doesn't. I mean, we know she can't die, but it's, it's an odd moment that, you know, you have that absolute confrontation with Sauron and Galadriel and he doesn't kill her. Like it just, it feels weird. Um, he just escapes. And the other thing that I wasn't so sure about is that, and this could just be the way that I've interpreted it, but I thought that, you know, Sauron has somehow woven his evil into all of the rings of power. And then he makes the one ring and he uses that to dominate and control the other rings somehow. But yeah. in in his, in the process of helping Celebrimbor, create this new alloy with with um which i guess they don't he doesn't they don't really accomplish it until he's gone so i don't know how he wove evil into the rings he doesn't the most important part of the three elven rings is that they are separate from the ones which have been tainted by sauron ah uh, okay 
the way the imbuing power into them works is vague in Tolkien's world, and a lot of this stuff has been vague, by the way, which is how come putting it in such specific terms in the show feels weird and jarring and wrong to a lot of people. Um, because uh, Tolkien simply says things like, the elves were beguiled by Sauron, and they have to show that in very concrete ways that involve, you know, dialogue and characters interacting, and that's, it's very difficult to actually show that stuff on, on screen. So I... I sympathize with them having that task in front of them but the way the the rings work is that sauron is involved with forging the ones for the dwarves the ones for the humans and the one ring that he has the elven rings are created in secret to avoid sauron's influence now once he puts on the ring he is able to perceive that the elves have rings themselves and is able to kind of reach out to them mentally so he doesn't suborn them to his will in the same way that he does with the nine rings he gives to the humans that become the ring wraiths he's not able to exert immediate control over them but they mention in lord of the rings the the books that um effectively when they realize sauron has forged the one ring they're immediately aware of his presence and they understand that they have been deceived into making these objects of power they take their rings off and they don't use them again until they the end of the war of the last alliance when the ring is cut from sauron's hand and he is dispersed and then arises again later on so from that point onwards it is safe for the elves to use their rings again but once Sauron forges the One Ring, they effectively have to remove them. And that's going to set up a really interesting thing with what they're doing with the Elven Rings in the show, being that the rings are effectively objects that have been created to sustain the Elves' presence in Middle-earth. There is this idea that they're, their light is going to fade and that they're going to diminish in the way that we see the Elves diminishing over the series anyway, but at a much accelerated rate, which is weird, but okay like sure like we'll <laughs> we'll leave that argument to one side for now because it's something that they have found obscure references in tolkien and kind of again interpreted them heavily to reach the point where they the elves basically say well we're going to be dead by spring yeah <laughs> what i like about that and what i like about what they're i think they're using it for is i think this eventual deterioration of the elves and the tie-in with mithril I think will eventually lead to the falling out between dwarves and elves. Yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely does. Um, and, and there's still some alliance to be had there later, I think. But the the idea of the elves sustaining their existence, once Sauron forges the ring and the elves have to stop using theirs in order to avoid falling under Sauron's influence the el the the clock is ticking on the elves again and so that maybe introduces some desperation that leads to them starting the eventual war against sauron that will happen and numenor gets involved with that and then finally we have the last alliance of elves and men that we see in the prologue to fellowship of the ring so you can see the trajectory of that a little bit from the point that we are right now and it remains to be seen how they're going to tell those stories but i think it's still there and yeah, there's there's some curious choices that are happening along the way, but I I, I am hopeful that in season two we're going to see some of that stuff borne out. Um, the one thing I wanted to say about the the pacing of the show, people use the word pacing a whole lot, and I think what I've narrowed it down to, my understanding of it, is that there is disjointed passage of time in a lot of this show. Mm. So 
we don't tend to... You, you talked about this on the episode with Steven. You don't know exactly how long it takes characters to get from place to place. You don't end up with a good idea of, you know, when in a year this stuff is happening. Is it taking longer than a year? Is it taking shorter? Some of the stuff in the Southlands feels like it could have taken place over the span of about a week and a half. But then the stuff in Numenor, they're putting together a fleet. They're clearly preparing for a while... And then the stuff with Eregion, the forges are being built in the background and it feels like six months have passed, right? I think part of that is a, a, a symptom of the show having to deal with compressing all of these events into a single series. And part of it is perhaps a little bit of poor planning and the editing maybe you know, not working in concert with that idea. The, the fact that a lot of the show cuts between the storylines quite frequently and we're not certain whether stuff is happening at the same time or if it's happening in the past or like a little bit in the future how long is a character supposed to have been unconscious for how long is a character supposed to be traveling for none of that can be put on screen for you without like date and time stamping some of the the frames which is clearly something they didn't want to do but i think it all ties into the way the elves perceive time, which is something they set up in the conversation between Elrond and Durin, in which mm -hmm. Elrond says, has it only been 20 years? And Durin says, yeah, it's been 20 whole years and I've had a lifetime in this time. I think a lot of the time when you see that disjointed passage of time, it's from the elves' perspective. So whenever an elf is the point of view character, it sort of becomes a very uncertain thing how much time has passed because to them it doesn't matter how much time has passed. They are eternal. They're immortal. And the main problem for them is the fading of their spirits, um, which is not exactly how Tolkien describes it in the books. But anyway, I think while I would love to see a timeline with all of these events plotted on it, just so I can keep it straight in my very human head, um, I think it's interesting when Elrond says in episode 8 we have three months to do the work that would take three centuries. That's actually how long it takes them to forge the Rings of Power in Tolkien's chronology. It takes them 300 years, effectively, to design and craft, and Sauron's influence goes in behind the scenes, and it's 300 years from them beginning to start to forge those rings all the way through to the three elven rings and Sauron's one ring. And they say we have to do that in the span of three months. And then they spend 10 minutes doing that in the show. So effectively, we are seeing three months pass in about 10 minutes of action. And when you apply that kind of measure to the rest of the show, we have no idea how much time has passed. But it's clear that we are seeing things from the perspective of the elves in that it doesn't really matter how much time has passed. What matters are the events happening in that sequence. I can see that perspective. I, they, we got a little bit when Galadriel and Halbrand arrived at Eregion. Uh, she says how long they've been traveling. I don't remember six how many days, weeks. Right? Was, it, yeah. was it six days? Six days ride or... Without rest. <laughs> yeah, they, they ask how old the wound is. And she says six days we rode without rest sort of deal because that's how long it took us to get here from Southlands. Yeah, poor horses, by the way. I bet the horses are very tired. <laughs> yeah. And I thought like, finally, okay, look, I, that makes sense as to why he slumped over because like, and I found some other inconsistencies there where like he's lying in bed near death and then he gets on a horse and rides up the hill with her and he's very upright yeah, <laughs> when yeah, he does mm -hmm. that. Uh, but then, so I was happy to see that he's obviously injured and hunched over and stuff when they arrived. It's like, okay, well that makes more sense. 
I feel like they could add a little bit more dialogue here and there to kind of help illustrate the passage of time. I don't necessarily want the whole Indiana Jones map dotted line thing, but I feel like they could do a little bit more uh, to communicate that. One thing that I thought was good was um, without the time thing, at least as far as you're concerned where people are in Middle Earth, the fact that the Harfoots Grove was burnt by rocks and yeah. lava from Mount Doom means like, okay, like they're not next door, but they're obviously close enough that, you know, molten rocks spewing into the air have landed and, and dismantled their, their grove by burning it down. And I thought, okay, well that's, that's cool. That means that they're, it eliminates any kind of like timeline issues. If they're separate timelines, it, it makes them a lot more closer geographically than I thought. So that's cool. Um, and I thought that the show could use a little bit more, uh, more stuff like that. My, when I say pacing issues, I usually re I'm referring to the speed at which they move plot points forward. It's like, you'll get an yeah. entire show with one beat and then you'll get another show that has six or seven beats. And it's just like, yeah, Oh my sure. God, like you, you could have spaced this out a little bit. And we go entire episodes sometimes without seeing the Harfoots or without seeing uh, Elrond and Durin have their conversations. And I feel like when we do see them, it, it tends to be crammed. And I think maybe they could have spaced out some stuff and they could have, um, or vice versa. Like maybe the, maybe the Galadriel Halbrand story is feeling crammed and they could have spaced that out over a couple more episodes. And again, when you're not seeing them all intercut, it does give the impression of more time going by. Um, one more question about that that last episode that I wasn't clear on. Are the gems that Celebrimbor is is putting on the rings are those the the Silmarils? No, no, no. not at all. Okay. okay. Um they're just they 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 sort it's the thing was like they set the whole story up with three Silmarils. He talks about Silmarils, doesn't say anything about the three gemstones, but it's it's a really weird parallel. And then but I was thinking in my head, like, no, the Silmaril was in the tree that the Balrog and the elf fought and destroyed <laughs> yeah. and created the meat. Like, I mean, I know that's made up for the show, but like, but yes. as far as the show is concerned, as far as the show concerned, mm -hmm. that Silmaril yeah. was either destroyed or buried in the earth somewhere when that tree kind of shot into the, or, or it has become the mithril. I don't know. Um, but I, I was just, I was curious about what the stones were. And one thing I did like about the, the, the whole rings and, and the construction was, I liked the conversation. I don't know whether it was Halbrand or or Celebrimbor that said it, but the fact that they could not get enough mithril um, to make anything large enough, so they decided to make two. I don't know what the decision was to make two, but I like that they have to be circular. It was a crown at first and then rings because the idea is whatever elvish power is either being woven into these rings or is inherent in the mithril itself when you loop it on itself, it like amplifies. Yeah, and I just, yeah. I just, I had like, I mean, I had the large Hadron Collider in my head. Like, just, yeah, I just, like I just, Tony Stark arc reactor kind exactly, of thing, right? Exactly. Like, and I thought that was a really cool note. Like I thought that was a really yeah. cool way to illustrate, well, why rings? Like why rings and not a sword or a dagger or something, right? And I like that, you know, explaining to the people that are maybe not as familiar with Lord of the Rings that like, this is why they're rings is because it's the circular power that keeps on going and going and going. And, and I, and I did also like the idea that it was Galadriel's idea to have three rings. And she explained it very well. She's like, one will corrupt, two will fight, three is a balance. Like there's always like with a, with three legs, you're always going to have someone or something to keep the other two in check. 
You know, like sure. you, if one person has a really bad idea, the other two can say, no, 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 you can't do that. You know, and I, and I think that it, it, it reminded me of politics. It reminded me of any kind of, um, you know, two-sided arguments versus three-sided arguments. And they tend to be a little bit more balanced, right? Yeah. And I thought that was a really cool idea. And I thought, and this is just me reading into the scene, that it seemed that Halbrand's plan was to make two rings. And Galadriel thought, huh, he's trying to divide us. I know. Yeah. I'll suggest a third ring and that I'll try to use his strategy against him and create these rings for us that will both save Elvendom on Middle-earth and also create a like tripod of power to um, protect us against Sauron's influence in the future. That's we need, what we I need a three-party system. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not to bring it too much into modern politics, but um, yeah, like I, I, I totally get that, and it's it's odd that they can't make that more obvious that that's really Galadriel's aim in thwarting Sauron at that point when they have telegraphed so much other stuff so almost thuddingly um yeah it's 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 interesting that there's so many balance issues with the show itself that you know it, it it's almost like an an admission of their own guilt at that point they're like you know maybe we should have a third showrunner to keep the other two in balance or something <laughs> i'm i'm not certain not not claiming that position by any stretch because yeah goodness goodness knows like it would be a a, a tough job <laughs> my joke last week was that like there's the the third showrunner is the guy that used to write for the wb <laughs> yeah <laughs> right it's like you're like lord of the rings your your wb is showing please please don't let that happen again uh any final thoughts to to wrap this up um and and look ahead to, to season two um not quite looking ahead to season two quite yet because it's going to be a while so frankly i'm just gonna i'm gonna rewatch this show same, again same. in the light of knowing that halbrand is sauron the entire time i'm curious to see if anything else is borne out by it I'm still waiting for the last few like reviews and analysis shows that I watch and listen to to trickle through because some people have taken an entire week to digest the news that Halbrand was Sauron the entire time. Um, I wanted to talk about the closing credits song um, because this was a very conscious decision to emulate what happens at the end of the Peter Jackson trilogy where the original song at the end of Fellowship uh, was, I believe, Enya, and then the one at the end of Return of the King was Annie Lennox. I always forget the one about the two towers because it's a a more kind of melancholy song, kind of more from Gollum's perspective, I think. And I forget who performs that, so forgive me. Um, but the closing credits song of this one performed by Fiona Apple. Um, I don't like it. <laughs> and it's, it's not that I don't understand what it's doing. Um, and I've been told uh, that I should probably listen to it out of the context of the show because I'm probably entangling it with my feelings immediately after the end of the show where I'm like, I'm not certain that I like too much of the way that went. Um, but musically, because I, I might as well bring this up because we talked about music at the end of the last show, I really understand what they're doing. The way that song is composed, aside from it just being the the ring verse, is very, it puts you on edge the music doesn't feel like it has a resolution in a musical sense. It doesn't, like, return to the root note of the key that the singer is singing in, and it has this very unsettling chord progression the entire time, which I think evokes what you're supposed to be feeling at the end of the show very well. 
I think it's got a lot to be said for it. And unlike Fellowship, which ends on a note of hope, and Return of the King, that ends on a note of, well, we're now at peace, this is very much like the future is uncertain. As a piece of music, it's well-crafted in that sense. But it's not going to stick in my head as long as, like, for, for as long as the Annie Lennox song at the end of Return of the King did. Um, it just doesn't feel like it has that catharsis. I think that's for a good reason, but I'm not certain that it's going to grow on me in quite the same way. You are correct in that it was Gollum's song is the uh, outro track for Lord of the Rings and Two Towers, composed and sung by Emiliana Torini. Oh, thank you for that. It's a, it's a name I I've regret I would have forgotten as well, you know, had I had I known it better before. So, And I knew what you were thinking of, and I couldn't quite remember the melody until I read the lyrics on the fandom wiki. And I was like, oh, yes, I get it. Where once yeah. was light, now darkness falls. Where once was love, love is no more. And it's and sung very slowly, and I re and it's very sad. And I I do re I do remember it now. Uh, and and it has this. You're right. It has a very similar sort of feel where like basically you let the bad guy get away, and you don't know what's going to happen next. And and mm -hmm. I I can see the parallels, but I I confess I did not listen on all of the the Lord of the Rings Rings of Power episodes. I tend to like get up from the couch and go like put dishes in the sink or whatever I'm doing, but I leave it going. And on this particular one, for whatever reason, even though it was the season finale, I, it was later, I was tired or something. I just immediately paused it and I got distracted by something and I never let it play out. I don't yeah. know whether the phone rang or something. Um, but yeah, I just, I never got, I never got back to it. So I didn't really listen to the whole thing. It did have that kind of vibe though. It had that kind of like melancholy, strange vibe to it. Um, it, it, to me, in my head, I was still thinking about Broody Hellbrand on the mountain, looking yeah. at looking at Mordor with a smirk. I was like, okay, that's I'm yeah. still processing that. I'm not thinking about the song, but and they did they didn't have the uh, text on the screen for that shot no. the way they did with the the previous one. Uh, that that's one thing I had in my notes that I didn't get to, so I'll briefly cover it here because I think I said earlier in the show that we were going to the Southlands text turning to Mordor in episode seven would have made way more sense if the show had continued burning in location names whenever it does an establishing shot. Because they did yep. that in episode one and two, and then they skipped a bunch, and then they did it in episode seven. And I was like, if this was more of an like a thematic thing that the show did, then it would make way more sense for you to do it then. And they did it again when they introduced Erin Gallen, the Greenwood, in episode eight, when the stranger is walking off on his own. And I was like, that's where I remember that from. They have been doing that. And so paired together with episode seven and eight, like it, it made a little bit more sense. But even then, I can see why people kind of laughed a bit at that because it wasn't something the show had done for a while and it seemed so on the nose. I saw a really cool fan edit of that in which it doesn't show up on the screen. Instead, lightning strikes Mount Doom. It flashes out to an overhead shot of the map they've been using to show the locations for the rest of the season, and the Southlands text is removed from there and Mordor appears in its place on the map. Mm. And that felt more effective to me in a way, and it felt like what the show should have done, and part of me really doesn't like doing like the fan re-edits of stuff so much, but that one spoke to me in a way that I thought that would have been more effective if they'd done that. Because they've used the map a number of times to illustrate to people where you are in Middle Earth, yes, and, and, absolutely. and you understand it's not a map that the characters are holding. Like it is a, it's a visual tool 
um that they're that they're using and and they've used it much more recently than episode two as well yeah 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 yeah. no i felt the same way especially what made it really hard for me was that they hung on adar so long that you're like say it say the word say mordor are you say the line bart he didn't say it he didn't say it and what they should have done for me for a simple edit would be cut to mount doom spewing ash in the background and then hear adar say it like rather yeah. than having him say it into like the off camera stare that he had, like just have the characters do it. You could do that with all kinds of locations. Like you can have some character talking about Numenor and then cut to the ships arriving at Numenor. And like, I feel like that would be enough for most people to say, oh, okay, this is where I am now. Yeah, I sort of feel like they they didn't want to give Adar the honor of having named Mordor because I feel like fans would get mad at the fact that like, oh, he shouldn't be the one naming it. It should be either Sauron or the elves should be calling it as like a derogatory term the mm-hmm. way Morgoth is really like an insult to the Valar known as Melkor. Hey, look, you know what? Counter blessings, at least it wasn't written in papyrus, right? Like they, yeah, true, they had their entirely own true. Font. You know, they had their own font going on. Which Take is, that, which is Avatar funny. movie. Uh, <laughs> Well, to wrap things up with the Internet Minute, uh, which is, of course, brought to you by you, dear listener. The Citadel Cafe is 100% listener supported. If you're getting value out of the show, please consider putting a little bit of value back in. You can become a member at patreon.com slash the Citadel Cafe. You'll get access to the member only Discord server, which is shared with my personal Discord and, of course, the Burst to Cut bonus audio sessions. Special thanks to our Bean Counter patrons, Cosmic and Smurf588, for your support on this episode. Patron count is at 28. If you'd like to be patron number 29, check out patreon.com slash the Citadel Cafe. I have some Lego to share with y'all. This has been an ongoing theme. Uh, Lego seems to be pumping out a lot of new sets. We are coming up on the holidays. Yes, I said that before Halloween, and I guess I have to apologize. But uh, this is the Lego Infinity Saga Hulk Buster. It is 4,049 pieces, retails for $700 Canadian, 21 inches tall, 19 inches wide, and 10 inches deep. And it is available on November 9th, 2022. Uh, It's not on my list to own, but I'm sharing it because of having just built the Optimus Prime 13-inch tall kind of action figure constructed out of Lego. I can only imagine the engineering and design effort that has gone into this pretty cool looking Hulkbuster uh, set. Uh, it's big. Like it's it's 21 inches tall. It's nearly twice the height of Optimus Prime. So I don't know where you're going to put it for starters <laughs> um, because Optimus Prime barely fits on my bookshelf. Uh, but it's, you know, if you are an Iron Man fan, like if Iron Man is your is your hero uh, or the hero of, of someone that you know, uh, then I think that this could be a, of interest because they they show the Iron Man Lego figure that you can build going inside of this. So it's so big that you can put the Iron Man Lego action figure inside the Iron Man Hulkbuster armor uh, to just kind of illustrate just how large it is. And it comes with a little plaque and a little um, Tony Stark Lego minifig. Um, The Lego minifig is not to scale. Like it's meant, it's much, it's more of a decorative thing um, than a real size uh, Tony Stark to go in the armor. Um, but it opens up, it has several lights. Uh, Lego is putting out lots of sets with lights in it now. So you've got the, the repulsor things on your hands for lights. The arc reactor has lights up in the chest. Um, and I'm sure that there will be some third-party light kits that you could buy on various sites to add even more LEDs to this thing if you really wanted to. 
And the cool thing about these particular builds is that they often leave you space to run wires where it would either on, an, on a Hulkbuster outfit, it would look kind of normal. Um, and and um, they usually have spaces between the pieces in these things. There's usually joints where you can run wires pretty, pretty seamlessly. So it could be a very cool thing for, for people that are into Iron Man. I, it's, they've priced me out of it. I, I think it's neat, but I, not, not for me, not for $700. It's not <laughs> something that, that I would. Um, I, and again, I'm not a bit, I mean, I like Iron Man, but he's not my not my marvel hero of choice so have you seen have you seen this before just now uh i have just taken a look at it a second ago and i am blown away by the level of detail in these things it's so interesting to see yeah the engineering that goes into it and everything uh also outside of my price range for a lego set i think but yeah phenomenal for collectors i'm sure yeah, the, the thing that I thought was the coolest part of it was like the foot and leg construction looks very, very cool. And to get Lego pieces to go together in those ways, also have a ball joint for an ankle and a hinge joint for a knee that, you know, will support this thing and not have it fall on its face or fall off your shelf and have you cry in the corner. Um, I It takes a lot of very um, specific building. And when I build stuff like this, that's big and has to support itself, I'm always really intrigued and surprised by how much like Lego Technic stuff happens inside, like how mm -hmm. many steps there are to build something that has like structural integrity. And then on the outside, it gets fancy and has all the cool angles. Even my Luke Skywalker helmet set had a lot of Technic pieces in the stand to ensure that the stand was going to be stable, the right width, it was going to slide together the right way. And it was, it was very, very interesting. Um, so that's my pick this week. What is yours, my friend? Well, I have noticed the Lego theme developing here, so I'm not going to rock the boat. Uh, I'm going to share something that we've also shared on the Spawn Chunks podcast. There was a community pre-show for Minecraft Live in which this was highlighted. I believe there was also an article about it on Minecraft.net or maybe linked on the Minecraft YouTube channel. There is a, an electronic music artist called Look Mum No Computer who collaborated with the Lego Minecraft set specifically to produce electronic music using lego pieces and minecraft sound effects there's a really cool video on lego's own youtube channel about this being put together there'll probably be behind the scenes on look mum no computer's own channel where he shares all kinds of bizarre contraptions and stuff that he has made without the aid of a computer but still making music with them and obviously your definition of computer is going to vary but this guy has made organs out of furbies um like he, he made a keyboard playing instrument that wires into the modular synth that goes into each furby doll and he tuned them all to different pitches and made sure that like vowel sounds were still possible and isolated the circuits that produce sound and then he was able to play them like a keyboard instrument he's made synthesizers that shoot fire out of them he's made bikes that play music at the speed you're pedaling it is wall-to-wall -wall weirdness on his channel he has a ted talk where he explains some of the stuff that he's done and it's clear that his brain is firing on all cylinders even when he's procrastinating so really interesting worth checking out look mum no computer on youtube well, that wraps up this episode of The Citadel Cafe. You can get more information about the show and links to some of the things that Johnny and I talked about at thecitadelcafe.com. Music for this show was composed by Kevin McLeod, and you can email us at thecitadelcafe at gmail.com or find the show by name on Twitter. Subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or find the show on YouTube. 
Word of mouth is the easiest way to support the show. Just tell a friend about the Citadel Cafe and where they can go to listen to it. And hey, while you're out there, leave us a review. It's a great way for the show to find some new ear holes. My name is Joel Duggan. You can find everything I am doing online, including my illustration and design portfolio at joelduggan.com. You can listen to my other podcast with my friend Johnny, who's here right now at thespunchunks.com. And of course, you can follow me on social media at Joel Duggan and on Twitch. Johnny, thanks again for doing this, man. It's always fun to hang out and talk with you. And I, I find a fun way to stretch our legs and talk about stuff that's not necessarily Minecraft and just going to hang out and have some fun. Where can people find everything that you're doing online? Well, aside from the spawnchunks.com, you can also find me by searching for Pixarifs. I'm Pixarifs on all social media that matters. YouTube and Twitch are the main places I hang my hat. But you can also say hi to me on Twitter or Instagram if you feel like it. Right now, I'm off to go and record an episode all about the latest Minecraft snapshot that just came out, which I'm sure we'll be talking on Monday's episode of the Spawn Chunks. So if you want to check that video out, I would very much appreciate it. You've been listening to the Citadel Cafe, where we are fast, easy and cheap, but you can only pick two. Or if you're glad to go three.